It is Friday, March 4th here in Draft Shark Studios in Rochester, New York. Welcome to the Draft Sharks Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Sheff, and it's been a little bit. We took a little break from this after NFL playoff action. I took a little vacation down to Florida. If you're watching the stream right now, you might see a little bit of peeling left. Um, Jared's enjoying <laughs> some family time right now, but really, at this point, there's no true offseason in fantasy football anymore. Best ball drafts got rolling even before the NFL playoffs ended. Jared and I spent some time talking with best ball guru Todd Burrows for his study hall episodes recently. So now as we spin things ahead to 2022, we're doing real live drafts. I'm looking to bring in some sharp guests to kind of broaden our perspective further. And I'm going to kick that off today with my guest. He is the director of analytics for the Roto Underworld network of sites. He is at Jlarky Tweets on Twitter, and he is presenting his entire wardrobe on TikTok. So you got to check that out over there. He is Josh Larky. Josh, thanks very much for joining me. Matt, thanks for having me. I'm excited. Like you said, there's no off season. Pretty much once the Super Bowl happens, it's like, all right, let's start looking at some rookies. Let's start doing some early drafts. And yeah, I'm excited to be here. And it not only gives us more time to draft, but different environments in which to draft. And we'll certainly get to all of that. And and when you like how you can approach things differently at different times of the year. But first of all, Josh, Mm -hmm. for anybody who's, who's less familiar with you, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself as a fantasy player, like how long you've been playing um, season long exposure, how much DFS best ball, whatever, whatever you think is relevant. Sure. So I haven't been playing very long, been playing about five years. I was not a fantasy football guy growing up. I was always a really a baseball guy, baseball analytics guy. Went to grad school to try and work for a baseball team in their analytics department. Ended up doing that. Realized it was not for me. <laughs> and uh, just kind of met Matt Kelly randomly at a sports analytics conference in grad school. And I, I mean, everyone in grad school is trying to make more money. Let's be <laughs> honest. And Matt said, hey, I'll give you some money if you can do some fantasy football coding for me. And at that point, I've been playing fantasy for a year and thought, okay, it's money. I, I like football stats. Let's do it. And yeah, it just kind of took off from there. So kind of just a, a rapid rise, I think probably due to the coding, it really helps you kind of get up to speed with that type of skill set. So I've done a lot of just research over the last four years working with Matt. And I'd say that my, my primary focus is at this point, I do everything from dynasty redraft, best ball, DFS, but player props. But I'd say that my, what I put the most time into right now is probably be best ball and DFS at this point. So not that I'm neglecting redraft and dynasty, but I'd say that those have become two things that I've found that I'm better at and enjoy the most. Mm-hmm. We've certainly seen an explosion of analytics type guys in, you know, mm-hmm. and females in the fantasy space. I've been around here for a while, so it's changed quite a bit over the years, but I've seen a lot more of that come in and it, it it enriches all of us. I mean, it's a new way to play the game. And I think it's probably important to be able to find your edge and maybe more important to find what you're not good at and maybe try to push away from that a little bit, not waste so much time and especially money. If there is something that you're better at than, you know, those certain areas. Yeah. hundred percent. I think that just kind of, the more that I play, the more I realize what I'm good at, the more I realize what I interested in, And I think that also just because I'm newer to the industry, just being around the industry more, seeing what other people have to say, I can get a better sense of the questions currently being asked 
And that helps me realize what hasn't been asked. And then that guides my research because I don't think any of us really like doing research that's been done where it's like, oh, I heard this guy did it. We're going to try and recreate the study. It's not, it's not very fun. I don't really want to sit at my, my desk all day trying to re relive the glory days of some other analyst from three years ago. So I, I think that's, that's kind of what I've always focused on is what, what are the current questions being asked? And then let's see if there's something new there that maybe hasn't been discovered or hasn't been asked in a certain way. So that's, that's really what I love about the work I do is getting right, to not, ask those, those new questions. Yeah. We're not peer reviewing for science journals. So we want to, exactly. the, the way that I take it too, is I'm not as much, I'm not an analytics guy. I, I don't know how to, you know, analyze large data sets. So when I see stuff come out from that angle, I'm like, all right, this makes sense because of this. I didn't see it before because I don't know how to study things like that, but I, I can make sense of it. Something else might come out and I'm like, I don't know if I buy that. That might be the kind of thing that I look into on my own. And, you know, really at, at this point, there's so much available. The best thing to do is kind of take it all in, use what you can, uh, mm -hmm. throw out what you don't think is worthwhile. And then, you know, just move forward, making your best guesses, because in the end, we're all just making our best guesses with these things. Yeah, agree with that 100%. So let's move on to underdog drafting. The first big board tournament has already filled. I don't know how soon they thought it would fill. I, I, they probably realized that we would fill it up by this point, but that's gone. We're moving on. FFPC has drafts out. Drafters has an early tournament. Best ball tens are live. Other places are live as well. So Josh, for these, for overall best ball play, I guess, before we even get to the tournaments, are you hundred percent tournament or are you also entering like, you know, the 12 team drafts at this point, just to balance your portfolio. At this point, I'm just exclusively tournament. Generally my first few drafts of the year will either be slow drafts and, or just random 12 person drafts, low stakes. Let's see what the draft room looks like, but within about a week then I graduate and it's just 100% tournaments at that point. I just don't think that the, the ROI on these 12 person drafts is worth. They, there's just not enough of a carrot dangling there when I go, Oh, I could four or five X my money compared to the tournament where I go, Oh wow, that is life changing money if I win that. So it's a lot easier for me to motivate myself. And I also like tournament strategy and trying to think about I think for me, I like getting in the mindset of how do I narrow how many things I need to get right? How can I what what do I have to do to build this super team where as few things as possible need to happen for this team to take off and kind of all the pieces to fall in place. So I kind of like thinking about it from that angle and yeah, that's why the tournaments for me, it's more fun to draft. And then also that carrot, it's a lot bigger of a carrot when you're like, Oh, there's 50 K for first place compared to oh, first place. Five X is their buy-in. So <laughs> right. that's kind of where I'm at. Are you more of a tournament or like the 12 team or are you more split? Cause I'm so heavily in that tournament zone. I mean, it's hard not to chase the carrot. And I, I think the bigger thing for me has been to realize, cause I've been playing for years and have been a season long player. So I think the challenge for me has been over the past few years to realize the difference between trying to win a league and trying to win a tournament. And it, it can apply to best ball. It can apply to DFS. And it's definitely different ways of team building. So I believe that I have become better at building for that specific competition. And right now, this particular offseason, I did start with a few of the, you know, 12 team drafts to kind of see where things were, see how players were getting ranked and drafted. But now it's just tournament for the same reason. I mean, 
you'd have to put a whole lot of money in to get a really good return on entering those leagues, a little bit less money to get a bunch of shots at a tournament. And I think that there's a better chance I have an edge there that's going to pay off something. So I, I'm chasing that ROI, chasing the the big payoff, especially with a little bit of money from FFPC winnings last year, helping out uh, to cushion. But now that we're talking about tournament drafting, what is your overall approach you know there are guys who talk about building a portfolio not getting overexposed to players there are are folks seeking unique roster builds do you have one particular area that you focus on or is it a a mix of things so this early in the off season i'm gonna have a, a pretty narrow portfolio and i'm basically just attacking the guys i think are mispriced and avoiding guys i think are mispriced in the other direction i do a lot more other strategies as the off season evolves. But I think that this early, that's an edge that I think I have. And I kind of think like as the, as the off season goes along, there's more wisdom of the crowd, more and more smart people are taking reps and drafting players. And there's more and more of a sample size behind those ADPs. And yes, underdog, there's so many people out there drafting, but it's still a small sample size compared to what it's going to be later in the off season. So That's an edge that I really like to hit is I think that people don't always ask themselves what needs to go right or wrong for this person to hit or miss ADP. And I think that's something that I generally do pretty well is evaluating a guy in a nutshell and saying, okay, how many things have to go right for this guy to hit his ADP? How many things have to go right for this guy to greatly exceed his ADP? And I, I think that that's just such an edge in these early drafts because at the end of the day, like it's all sharks all the draft sharks there's you don't get a whole lot of brand new fantasy people that are like oh i'm gonna try february or march best ball that's not really how it works so i think at this point you know everyone's having occasionally you get the clunker but usually people have decent roster construction and they're vaguely aware of all that so i think that the edge right now is really in yes everyone's constructing moderately good looking rosters but some of the players that they're taking at ADP, I go, you know, there's going to have to be a lot of things that fall into place for this guy just to even hit his ADP. Or and if you want him to exceed his ADP, I mean, my goodness, we need even more things. You can start rattling them off on your fingers. And I, I think that that right there is just such a big edge is that for some reason, people get so caught up in like upside and stuff like that. And they don't just stop to think what needs to go right. What needs, what, what could go wrong for these players in February, in March. Yeah. And I think that there's a big edge just in logic to your point too. You can look at a player and you don't have to dislike him overall to not like him where he's going. If a guy is going in the fifth round and his upside is third round value, then, you know, I don't feel bad about missing out on him. And I think that's been, I, I guess what's been challenging for me is when you get into fantasy and then especially when you start doing fantasy advice, it has to come from a place of maybe arrogance, but at the very least confidence, you have found yourself to be a good enough player that you're beating people. Now you think you're good enough that you can tell people who they should be drafting. So the players that you like are obviously the right choices. And that's how you have to approach the season to some degree. Now I am more and more, realizing, you know, the other side of that is obviously we all know we're not going to be right about everything. And there are ways to hedge your bets here and and just like a different way of thinking about players. But I do think that still kind of to your point here, that 
drafting right now is when you can kind of draft it the old way. You don't have to spread it around. The ADP is not as good as it will be later in the year. You can focus on those guys that you think people are overlooking and back away from the guys that you think are overpriced. You, you know, you talk about how it's all sharks right now. I'm surprised at plenty of the players that sharks are pushing up the board. And, and I guess I'll throw out one particular player to just kind of um, get more specific on is Debo Samuel obviously is coming off a monster season and I can understand why people are excited about him right now, but I look at him being at the one, two turn in early drafts. And I think people are, are nuts because he brings a profile that will be nearly impossible to duplicate because he already couldn't duplicate it over a full season. He was two different players last year. He was a dominant number one receiver. And then he was this hybrid guy who needs rushing touchdowns to perform. So it, I guess it's been surprising to me to see even among people who are, you know, digesting this stuff all the time and are obviously sharp drafters to some degree, players like that can, can be pushed up to that level. Yeah. I was, I was, I wasn't sure if we were throwing names out this early. So I'll talk about Debo and then I've got one name and kind of an example of how I might handle them in tournaments. So with Debo, I, I agree. I really don't actually know who's pushing Debo's ADP up. Cause if you look on Twitter and stuff, everyone's like, Oh, Debo's ADP is atrocious. And I don't quite get it. I mean, we're going to have Trey Lance. What is he going to be running the ball eight to 12 times a game? So they're not going to be passing a lot. So for Debo's path to 20 fantasy points a game, it's probably not going to be able to come exclusively through the air. Okay. So then he's going to run the ball a lot more. All right. But we already have Trey Lance running the ball a lot. We already have Elijah Mitchell running the ball a lot. We know that just running the ball often up the middle for some reason, like Debo would sometimes do like that more likely to get injured. And suddenly it's, it's a pretty terrifying profile. And you think about how many things have to get right. We need Trey Lance to be a very good passer. And I don't think there's any question in my mind that Trey Lance is going to be an elite fantasy asset himself, but we've seen this show before. We just saw it with Jalen hurts. Jalen hurts was not making fantasy superstars week in week out with Goddard and Devonta Smith. And I think that could very well be the, the Trey Lance show. It's Trey Lance is a borderline top five quarterback in fantasy points per game. And then everyone else around him is kind of lacking because Trey Lance is pulling in pass attempts. If you're playing in PPR or half PPR leagues, sorry, your receiver just already getting fewer points because there's fewer pass attempts. And he's probably going to run some at the goal line. So with Debo, I'm with you. It's just so many things have to go right. And I think that the scariest one is you just need Trey Lance to end up being a better passer than he is runner. And I do not see that happening for year one. Mm -hmm. The guy that I, one guy I was thinking of, I have a few more names for you later on, but one guy is that I, that I've tried to figure out how to handle Gabe Davis. So I don't like Gabe Davis at his ADP. He goes in the sixth round. He had a 10% target share as a rookie. And then he had a 10% target share in year two. This is, this is a guy that has been treated as a wide receiver for, pretty much in back-to-back years. He had a very good playoffs. That's very nice. Good for Gabe Davis. However, I will draft Gabe Davis in the sixth round once Sanders and Beasley are no longer there and once they don't trade for or sign a wide receiver in free agency and once they don't draft someone on day one or day two at wide receiver. So that's an example where it's like, think about how many things have to go right for Gabe Davis to actually legitimately be a six-round pick. He's going before guys like Brandon Cooks. Brandon Cooks just certified 25% plus target share. You know what you're getting with Cooks. And with Gabe Davis, the way I handle him is I think I have one 
I've done 150 of those, those big board drafts on underdog. I think I have one Gabe Davis share. And the way that it happened is I took jo- Josh Allen fell a little bit. So Josh Allen goes at the two, three turn, which is pretty aggressive for a quarterback. So he was like mid third round. And I was like, all right, let's try the Josh Allen. And then it was mid seventh round. And I go, wow, Gabe Davis, he fell a full round of ADP. I have him ranked lower than that. I still wouldn't take him in the mid seventh, but in a tournament, I thought, okay, if Gabe Davis, if everything goes right, if I already have Josh Allen on this team. Now I'm allowed, I'm giving myself permission to take Gabe Davis in this draft. And I think that's kind of how you should handle those types of players is that, yes, even if Gabe Davis is ranked 90th in my personal rankings, but I'm taking him at 75 instead of pick 65 or whatever. The justification is few teams are going to have taken Gabe Davis that late. I have him stacked with Josh Allen and I'm insulating myself in the sense that if everything goes right for Gabe Davis, which I think is a low probability chance, mm-hmm. then I have a low probability of like a, a low percent of my entries that also match up with that probability. And then we'll see what happens. But I think that's how I've treated Debo, how I've treated Gabe Davis. It's like a lot of things have to go a certain way in the draft room. And then I'll take a shot just because I'm thinking at this point, me with this player is different than most people that have gotten this player in the draft. Yeah. I think I'm at zero shares of Gabe Davis through, I believe 50 entries to the big board. And for all the reasons you said, so even if everything goes his way in terms of Beasley being gone, Emmanuel Sanders being gone, them not bringing in a challenger for him, even then, I mean, is he a smash from wide receiver 32? I think it's a, that would be a fair price for him at that point. I still don't think he's a God from that level. So I think that it's interesting now, a couple of interesting points, I think, branch off of that. First, the team building aspect, you mentioned the share that you have is a Josh Allen team. So yeah, especially for this format where you need to win the regular season, but then you also need to win one week playoffs. Now, Gabe Davis could let you down all season and then he could have the one week against the Chiefs and he could be a savior for your team. So that's where it makes sense to have him around. But I agree in general, even if everything goes right, I don't think I'm going to be sad to not have Gabe Davis shares on my team. Now, to a larger point, why Debo Samuel's going where he is, why Gabe Davis is going where he is, why other players that, that other people might be focusing on, it's no matter how sharp the draft room is, recency bias, confirmation bias are real and they are always going to be there. And recency bias is clearly at play on Gabriel Davis and other players, Elijah Mitchell, uh, to some degree. But even if we can tell ourselves out loud, obviously Gabe Davis just had the game of his life and he's never going to replicate that. Once you get into those drafts and you're like, well, it's Gabe Davis versus Traylon Burks. It's Gabe Davis versus Adam Thielen. He, Adam Thielen's getting old. You can talk yourself into the flashy toy that just had the enormous game with the still ascending quarterback in the top offense. Confirmation bias, I think, is at play on Debo Samuel because the initial rankings on underdog go by whatever the projections are that they use. You know, they put in rankings in that system. People get into the draft. And even if you're not excited about Debo right now and you can realize the fragility to his profile, you know, once it gets to 14 and you're like, oh, Debo was the number 11 player on the board. and He's still there. I guess I might as well take him, especially if you're building this portfolio of players. You're just spreading it around. And that's why a player like that starts there, stays there. You know, it just gets confirmed because his ADP stays in that level. So you think it's a value. I think that those aspects 
are where the edges now and you know there will there will always be potential edges for reasons like that because of people's biases yeah that's a good point and that's what someone asked me at one point they said pretty much all these platforms jonathan taylor's the 101 mccaffrey's the 102 and adp and when I, i've made rankings and stuff and people go oh why who do you think has the higher ceiling and i go christian mccaffrey who do you think's more likely to have a better ceiling or better season jonathan taylor who is more likely to be the absolute smash league winning player McCaffrey. And I'll, all I said was, Hey, if McCaffrey was the consensus one-on-one, I'd have McCaffrey at one. But if Jonathan Taylor is a consensus one-on-one, I'm fine with that. I don't think I want to avoid Jonathan Taylor just because I think he has a better shot. He's a bigger back. He's younger. He doesn't have the past two years lost due to injury, but McCaffrey's got this crazy ceiling. So I think that's an interesting point where you're like, they just put Debo there at pick at ADP 11 or 12 or whatever his initial ADP is. And that kind of is an anchor. And I think you can even see that where it's like, I, I don't dislike Taylor at one-on-one or anything like that. But I mean, if they were flipped, I would flip them in my rankings. And that's one where I don't feel confident enough in evaluating the, the upside versus the safety in those two picks that I just want to make sure that I have exposure to both those guys mm-hmm. at a roughly one in 12 drafts kind of pace. So then I'll just play by the ADP rules. So I think it's interesting how, how that kind of works. Because as you were talking about Debo, I was like, that sounds just like me justifying why I had JT over CMC, even though I think CMC obviously has a higher ceiling. Mm-hmm. So very interesting. Yeah, I, I have gotten into two drafters drafts lately, which is full PPR. And I got, I think, the, the first pick in one, the second pick in another. And I just, when that finally filled and it was a live draft, I wasn't able to get on in time to make those picks. And I got, I auto-drafted Jonathan Taylor in each of those cases for full PPR. And it's gotten to the point where I was like, ah, I can't believe I missed out on Cooper Cup and Christian McCaffrey and took Jonathan Taylor for full PPR. You know, and then I have to walk it back to myself and be like, it's really not a bad pick, man. You'll take, you'll get the big weeks from Jonathan Taylor, even if he doesn't quite equal those guys. But I, I do think for Jonathan Taylor, it's come back a little bit. He started out as the clear number one in these best ball drafts. And now there's a little bit more of like, well, guys, are, don't we realize that if Christian McCaffrey is healthy all season, he's still, you know, has a much higher ceiling than Jonathan Taylor or anybody else. So he deserves to be up there. And if you are taking him at three or four, why aren't you taking him at one? Yeah, I, I'm, I've, I was doing some research and I think I made some tweet that was basically like, if you took McCaffrey's 2019 season and took away all his touchdowns, he still had more points per game than Taylor this past year. And that just kind of shows just how ridiculous in a PPR format McCaffrey's usage is. And then the other way that I've thought about it is some people – it's interesting because there's a group of us where it seems like you included where we're like, you know what? McCaffrey has a very real case for the 101. But then there's also people out there that go, I couldn't draft McCaffrey. In the, how am I? You want, me to, you, you want me to use a first round pick on the guy that got injured in back-to-back seasons? Are you kidding me? He's a running back. He's going to get injured again. And to that, I'm always like, okay, do I think like what? Do I think there's a one in 12 chance that McCaffrey stays healthy this year? Sure. And then if he stays healthy this year, he's the RB one in fantasy. Like there McCaffrey doesn't really have like his floor and ceiling are both kind of RB one in fantasy. And I think that's something that's very interesting is that with him, you just, you cross your fingers for health because a healthy McCaffrey is outscoring every running back 
by three to five fantasy points a game at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you're drafting one best ball team, then you probably shouldn't take Christian McCaffrey, I guess. But if you're playing some level of volume, you want to have some exposure. And I mean, he showed it to us in his two injured seasons. When he's on the field, he's still been a monster. And if you're at, at worst, if you're getting, what, four or five Christian McCaffrey games, uh, you'll still be okay, I think. All right, so you mentioned that you have some other players. Let's get into some more specific players that uh, either you like or dislike, and we can go. We can go either way first. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll give you someone I like. We've been pretty negative on some of these players. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about someone that that I really like before I nice just start hours. before I start pooping on some <laughs> other guys and their ADP. So another guy that I've got written down that I really like is Travis Etienne, and one of one of my big hits last year was DeAndre Swift and I'm not saying that just be cocky. Like I missed on, I was one of the people that missed on Debo last year. So didn't get them all right, but I got DeAndre Swift, right. And I just said, this is a, this is an elite talent at running back with great draft capital who catches passes. And I don't care what the coach speak is. I don't care how good this offense is or good. This defense is all I know is that DeAndre Swift's going to be out on the field a lot. He's going to get some goal line carries and this really bad Lions team. I mean, like, ooh, Lions bad. They're going to be in comeback mode, so Swift's going to get his targets. Sure enough, Swift absolutely smashed when in the he was like a fifth-round ADP running back. We fast forward here, and it's like people didn't learn their lesson. This is Travis Etienne. He was healthy enough to come back last season if the Jaguars were in the playoffs. Travis Etienne's going to be incredibly explosive. He's going to be his old college self with this whole offseason of recovery, round one draft pick, reunited with his college quarterback. They won a national championship together. These guys are best friends. Trevor Lawrence, in all these high-pressure situations, is going to want Travis Etienne out on the field. And what I loved about Etienne last year, it was so sad that he got injured preseason, was that generally with a mobile-ish quarterback like Lawrence, the running back targets suffer because oh, the, the pocket's collapsing, Trevor Lawrence, can he dump it off? No, no, no. He's he's fast. He'll run it. But we saw in ETN's college career playing with Lawrence, it was the rare case of the mobile quarterback that can freeze linebackers and help his running backs rushing efficiency while also heavily targeting Travis ETN. And I just don't understand how this isn't DeAndre Swift's 2021 season replaying for us right now with ETN in the fifth round. I mean, James Robinson just tore his Achilles. This is Travis Etienne's backfield. So I don't know if you like or dislike Etienne, but I have yet to be convinced any other way aside from at this point, Travis Etienne is last year's Swift. And I'm, I'm on this take very firmly right now. <laughs> the, only, the only reason I don't have more Travis Etienne is because I have been going running back heavy earlier in the drafts because the drafts have been going wide receiver heavy. I like him very much for all the reasons that you just said. It's so destined that James Robinson got himself out of the way late last season just because he saw what was coming. And I mean, it even adds to that, that we don't really know what their wide receiver situation is going to look like this year. Obviously, LaVisca Chenault's sticking around, but and Marvin Jones is under contract for now, but who else is going to be there? I don't know. I mean, Travis Etienne could be as much as the RB1 and the wide receiver two for this team. So I, I absolutely agree that he's the guy that stands out in that range as somebody that could just look like this supreme value by the time we get to the end of the season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, He's also actually, before I'm sorry, before we get away from Etienne though, I think he, he gets 
extra interest because he's the rare running back that you could stack with his quarterback. Uh, He and Trevor Lawrence could go off together this year, which is not usually the case with a running back and a quarterback. And Trevor Lawrence, I think, has been a nice value versus what his personal upside is. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that's a fun one to stack. I actually have a lot of names kind of in that fifth round right now. It's sort of strange. I, I kind of think that there's a lot of guys going in the fifth round that should go late third, early fourth. And I don't know if that's just me being weird about it, but I don't like a lot of these fourth round picks and I'll make a lot of the fourth round picks. Just, I don't want to stray too crazy far from ADP, but there, there's a lot of drafts where I make two fifth round picks in rounds four and five. And the ETN is one of those guys where depending on my build, sometimes I'll even take him in the fourth late. If it's late fourth and he's there sometimes and I I'll go, Yeah, sure. I think this guy should be going in the third round. I don't see why, why he isn't Travis Etienne, Welcome to the squad. And the argument against reaching of course, is why take the guy there. I'm volume drafting. I can get him in the fifth round. I'm going up against teams that are going to take him later, but, at this point, I think it's absolutely worth making those reaches to get a player you want versus following a board that we just talked about is not as efficient as it's going to be and getting stuck with some dead weight on your roster eventually. Yeah, one thing that I – a couple of notes I had in terms of like how I try and build good rosters and that I think kind of ties into this ETN thing is that, sure, it's not the best to take them in the fourth round. Most of the time I'm taking them in the fifth round. But I think the worst mistakes, especially in these tournaments – are when people hedge too much with roster construction. I'll give you an example. If I take two running backs pretty early, let's say that through three rounds, I've got, I don't know, I've got Chubb and Saquon on my team. If I then turn this into a six running back build and I go, I'm going to take four more running backs. Maybe I don't even take them super early, but I'm like, I'll take a running back in round six. Or maybe you're like, oh, like Damian Harris is my RB3. Next thing you know, you've got Gainwell RB4 and you have two back-end guys and you have six running backs and you started with Chubb and Saquon. The, the issue with that that I see is that this is probably a very robust team for the regular season. You're probably fine. You can probably get away and fi- figure out the wide receiver core for the most part, but there's going to be people that also took a Chubb and Saquon or a Jonathan Taylor and a Swift. Like there's going to be people that started off with two running backs and they only have four on their team and come the playoffs, your odds are stacked against you because maybe you have nine receivers on your team. Well, you know what? This team with four running backs and two early like you has 11 receivers on their team. And already you're just doing the math and you're like, Oh shit. The, the spike week odds are now against me because I've got too fewer receivers in my, my player pool for these weeks that matter most. And now I'm just praying for touchdowns. So I think those are kind of the, the bigger issues is that that's going to hamstring you a lot more later on in the tournament than, oh, I took ETN in the late fourth. Or another guy I like is Mike Williams. It's like, oh, I took Mike Williams at the four or five turn. And it's like, yeah, sure. You should probably wait, take him at ADP but that that's actually a mistake you can or mistake that you can recover from and build around just fine. Whereas if you're going with six running backs too early, the math is so much more against you when you've got fewer players in your player pool come playoff time than the team where it's like, Oh, I have two fifth round picks, even though one of the fifth round picks is playing like a fourth round pick and you got a fourth and a fifth. So 
those are the mistakes that I think are actually much more costly that mm-hmm. people don't always recognize is that come playoff time, you really want the odds to be in your favor in that sense. Yeah. So to that point, do you have a primary build in terms of positional distribution that you chase? I'm sure that you mix it up plenty through 150 drafts, but is there a primary that you use more often? Whew. I've done a lot of the, the three, five, eight, three, three quarterbacks, five running backs, eight receiver, three tight end. Three, five, nine, three, I think is what you meant, right? I'm still struggling with these 21 drafts. Yeah. <laughs> three, three, five, nine, three, and mm-hmm. three, six, nine, two. So that's generally where I'm at. Tight end is pretty much always the position I seem to punt. It's just really hard, especially I play mostly on underdog where it's half PPR. And like, Mm -hmm. it turns out these tight ends just don't score a whole lot of points. Mm -hmm. What I think it it is potentially is that FFPC is so popular and Mm -hmm. has such a, such a big cult following and it's tight end premium. And then I think when those people come over to a site like underdog, it's very hard for them to resist when they're like, Oh my God. Travis Kelsey's not a top five pick. I'll take him at the, I'll take him in the first round anyway. Like what? He's falling. So I I think that might be what it is, is that it's half PPR with no tight end premium. So I find that's generally the position I'm punting if anything, but I wouldn't say that I even stick to those builds that much. Those are probably just my most common. Mm -hmm. I've done some weird ones. Like I've done some four quarterback builds with this 20 round draft where I'll just take four quarterbacks and like four of the final five rounds. And then just roll the dice that I've got a, a quarterback each week, knowing the other positions are strong. So I've done some extreme stuff, but mm-hmm. probably most common is that it's a fairly balanced roster when all is said and done. And that mm-hmm. balanced for me is going to probably look more extreme to the average person mm-hmm. because I'm thinking of tournament balance. So it's not you're you're gonna look and go, wow, this one position group looks kind of weak, and I'll say, Yeah, I know. It's like, oh, I just need one of these three later round running backs to hit in this team mm-hmm. set. You didn't like my running back group? Fine. If one of these guys exceeds ADP, we're good. And I think that's one of the, the big tournament strategies. Oh, we've got, we've got Eagles in the chat. My other four quarterback friend. Not a lot of people like doing the four quarterback build. So yeah, I think that's, the, that's a fun way to get different when people don't quite realize how replaceable some of that quarterback production in a one quarterback best ball league can be Mm -hmm. if you just stack up at the end and you're like oh i've got daniel jones matt ryan like these guys you're gonna get some 20 point weeks out of these guys so i can certainly understand the logic of doing a different build when you're trying to win a large field tournament have you looked at all into how odd roster builds have fared in making money in these tournaments over the past couple years or is that is it still a little bit early to to know that So a lot of these pretty extreme builds do make a lot of money. However, I still think it's early to fully understand. I'll tell you what the the two factors at play are from what I've seen and why I don't just take my own analysis as gospel is yes, these extreme, more extreme strategies often seem to have a better ROI. However, the conflating variable here is that the the sharper drafters are the ones that often do the extreme strategies. Mm -hmm. So I'd be shocked if the extreme strategies weren't people winning money. If the the people that are plugged in like us that are podcasting or on social media, reading, researching, and they go, oh, ooh, hyper fragile running back. Wow. You don't have the casuals doing these really fragile running back builds, crossing their fingers that uh, one of those guys greatly exceeds ADP and that then they're set. 
So I think that's kind of the issue is that we're still so early in a lot of this. Mm-hmm. But I do think that in general, these extreme builds will, will often do pretty well just because you have to get fewer things right. So yeah. it's kind of like what I was saying with you take two running backs early, you finish up with six on your team. There's probably someone who also found the the nuts running backs. It's like last year, what was it? It was like if you went Eckler, JT or something. Mm-hmm. So like there's going to be another guy that has Eckler, JT. But instead of going six running backs and hedging, he has four and just way more receivers, and you're just punching uphill come playoff time. So I think that's more of uh, like the – from my research, it seems like that's where the money is and that's where the sharper players are. But I do think there's a reason the sharper players have also gravitated towards that strategy. How, how much have you looked into like advance rates, win rates year to year? You know, we talked about it being still kind of young in the lifetime of, of best ball tournaments, but – um, how much have you found last year's win rates or advance rates to help planning for the coming season? So I think that one thing that I've, there were a few things I learned with looking at some of the advance rates and that I actually found that it was a little less build specific. There, there's some builds that you can do that are going to have bad advance rates, but those are also just bad builds. Like when it was an eight, when they, when most best ball drafts last year were 18 rounds, you'd have people taking seven running backs. That's probably not going to work. You'd have people taking six receivers and that was it. And it's like, ah, oh, that's, it's probably not going to work. Oh, you went four or five tight end. That's eh, probably not going to work. So you have some of those where it's like, all oh, right off the bat, let's X them out. But mm-hmm. some of the stuff that I've noticed that's actually really important to improve those win rates is looking more at like when you're drafting the players. And that when we talk a lot about like three quarterback build, Sure. The three quarterback build is a pretty sturdy one. You're generally going to do well, but that's also encompassing people that took three really late quarterbacks. That's going to encompass people that took three early quarterbacks. You could have someone that goes Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes, Lamar Jackson, and they have three quarterbacks in the first five rounds. And that's going to count the same three quarterback build to the person that took three later quarterbacks. So I think that it's not just the build, but it's also looking at the sequence and understanding that generally with these tournaments, especially underdog, which I do the most where it's half PPR, the extreme zero RB strategy generally hasn't worked out as well because it's half PPR. You kind of need the stud running back. So Mm -hmm. if you're through 10 rounds with no running back, that's probably not the best way to do it. But if you're through seven rounds and you have one receiver, it's probably also not the best way to do it. So I try and combine both the build with when the players are getting taken. Since mm-hmm. I think that those two, it still has it. It's still kind of the wild west. We haven't quite cracked what that middle ground is and what kind of like the, the acceptable range is with how we're playing with that. So that's what I try and do a lot of work and research with. And what I think is the most interesting is how do you marry those two together? And maybe this year you can get into round seven without without any running backs or one running back and still find some guys that are, are popping uh, ADP-wise there. So you talked about players that you do like before. Let's go back to specific players now and start some of that pooping on ADPs that you promised a few minutes ago. I've got two more guys for you. So I had Davis written down. I also had Debo written down. I've got two more names. We'll just start with the quarterback. Joe Burrow. This guy goes before Kyler Murray right now. <laughs> I think it's pretty egregious. I made a nice little TikTok about it. It did pretty well. Basically just saying like people have no business valuing Joe Burrow as this elite fantasy asset when 
he has never actually had elite fantasy production. I think he was the, the QB 18 per game as a rookie. And then the QB 10 per game last year in terms of fantasy points. And that's including those massive, that two game stretch where he had nearly a thousand passing yards. It just turns out that if you have a career 10 rushing yards a game, like Burrow does, it's kind of an uphill battle to score fantasy points. And if he's getting drafted right around when Lamar gets drafted and right before Kyler is getting drafted, when these guys are going to run for hundreds and hundreds more rushing yards and many more rushing touchdowns, that I have a hard time with. Especially when you see that Joe Burrow was the QB 10 per game this past year. QB 10 per game. He's going as a, what, ADP QB 5? He was the QB 10 with the third highest touchdown rate in the NFL. It's not like that can go up that much. Joe Burrow is already playing with fire. He's already really efficient in a stat that even the good quarterbacks struggle to maintain a super high level. So if you're telling me that everything went right with the touchdown rate, I mean, Jamar Chase had almost 20 yards of reception this year. There were some crazy plays that happened. And still, Joe Burrow, QB 10 per game. Do I think he can finish a little better than that this next year? Sure. Yeah, he's a year removed from the ACL. Maybe he runs a little more. Maybe the offense is even better. But it's such an uphill battle for Burrow to even hit QB 5 that there's just no meat on the bone. He's not going to be QB 4, QB 3. I just don't understand. what When you take Joe Burrow there, you're hoping that his ceiling is pretty much his ADP in a perfect world. And that's why with him, I just I cannot pull the trigger on fifth round Joe Burrow. Taking him, I think, twice. And it's where I happen to have both Chase and Higgins on the team. So then I go, all right, it's tournament time. If Chase and Higgins hit, then Burrow hits. All right, let's throw him on in the sixth round because he fell around. All right, fine. But that is not a quarterback. I'm excited about an ADP. Do you, are you a, are you agreeing on this? Disagreeing? I don't know. Like some people get really angry when I slander Joe Burrow in fantasy football. I think the problem is you need to have a cigar when you're doing it. So there's <laughs> been some correction at least, because I think he was QB three early in underdog drafts. So yes, I guess it's good there, but I, I totally agree. I mean, I think that if you're drafting Joe Burrow, you are mad that somebody else beat you in a tournament last year with Jamar Chase and Joe Burrow in that tournament. That's just the wrong way to look at it. You know, could the same thing happen again where they have a monster week 16 or 17 or whatever it is to decide it? Sure. But you're paying an awful lot to do that. So there's some recency bias on what they did at the end of last regular season. There's also the fact that the Bengals are pushed up by what they did in the postseason. So if Jamar Chase is going in round one, and T Higgins is at the two, three turn, and then everybody's stacking to some degree at this point, then Joe Burrow is going to be pushed up the board. And it sounds like you think that that is making people reach for a stack when it wouldn't necessarily be the right play. You know, in general, it's nice to have your top receiver and your quarterback together, but if you overreach to get that quarterback, then it kind of takes the way of value of that stack, right? Yeah, that's one thing that I did a lot of research on last offseason is stacking is plus EV overall. I think that's partly because it's good, it's correlated, partly because better drafters are the ones that are more aware of stacking. But what I basically did for a lot of research is I took like a, whatever the, the quarterback and the, the receiver's ADP was, and I really easily just added them together. So if a quarterback's ADP was 50 and the receiver's ADP was 60, 
combined ADP is 110. It turns out that if you're if you're grabbing those guys at like 80%, 85%, 60% ADP, like if if that ADP is combined 110 and you get them at 90 overall combined. So maybe you grabbed the quarterback at pick 40 instead of 50 and the receiver at pick 50 instead of 60. So the combined ADP is not 110 like it's supposed to be. It's 90. That's actually such a losing strategy. And the advance rates are in the toilet. It's it's like the fish advance rates. Like you're supposed to advance uh, in these tournaments. It's like the top two of 12 often will advance to the next round. So one in six, 16.7%. The, the stack reachers, these, these combinations are often advancing sub 10%. You're basically just killing all your potential at money making. So that's why it's very important to not reach on these stacks and that it's not like some panacea where it's like, oh, I stacked. Just give me give me first place already. Like, where where's the prize money at? Do you do you see that I have a I saw some people with some hilarious teams last year where they'd be like, What give me the prize? I've got I've got literally everyone on these two teams. And you look and they're just taking guys two, three rounds early to make this fun team. And I'm like, I hate to say it, but this team's dead. <laughs> I love to say it, honestly. We're competing <laughs> against those teams. We love to see it. Yeah, I, I I believe that you did a solo podcast on that stacking stuff last year that I listened to. I did. Sometime around the summer. So it was good stuff. And I, building on that, had, is there any anything else that you would tell us that people are doing wrong right now or that we should be doing that we're not doing enough in terms of how we should be stacking these teams beyond like don't reach for pieces just to make the stack. So I think that one thing that I like to do is I'm generally a later round tight end guy. I like to stack my tight ends with the quarterback. If we look at the the breakout tight ends, guys that are getting drafted late who end up being okay. It's often just touchdowns that buoy them. And that's why I think you should always be looking for tight ends and good offenses that aren't valued as such. So for me last year, my, my highest exposure late round tight end was Rob Gronkowski. That worked out pretty well. For the most part, the general thesis for me was uh, the Buccaneers are going to score a heck of a lot of touchdowns and they're probably not going to take Rob Gronkowski out at the goal line. And he's been good before. So he's more likely to be good again than a random, random tight end. That's never been good. And I think that uh, a couple guys that could be in that kind of role this year in terms of guys to stack is I think the the Cousins Conklin stack is still viable. I'm just not on Team Irv Smith yet because he hasn't done anything. So I like the idea that you can get Cousins kind of in the middle rounds and then in the absolute final round of your draft, take Tyler Conklin, who also isn't ever drafted unless you take him yourself. So if for some reason what happened last year happens again, which, I mean, why, why couldn't that happen? You are going to be one of the only people in tens of thousands of entries that pulled the trigger on Conklin. So I think that's kind of a fun one where I think it can be a good offense once again. And that Conklin, in his first year as a full-time tight end, had a really good season. I think Robert Tunyon's an interesting one. I think Rogers stays in Green Bay. If Tunyon's fully healthy, he goes in pretty much the final round and that can be another one where we already saw him catch double-digit touchdowns. So I think those are some of the interesting ones that you can stack kind of sneakily. And especially with Conklin, I think that's just one of my favorites because I'm not doing it a ton since I think there's a good chance Irv Smith does something. But I think that that's a fun one to do when you know that we've already seen it hit. It could very well hit again. 
And if it does, nobody out there is grabbing Conklin. He's like nine tight ends down the list in terms of tight ends that don't get drafted in the average draft. So I think he's an interesting one. So I think that that's the kind of stuff that I'll look at for like sneaky stacks is some of these later round guys where I think they can kind of luck into a lot of touchdowns. Mm -hmm. I think Tyler Conklin, the reason that he's down as low as he is is because of him uh, hitting free agency. So First of all, I guess, are you, it sounds like you're assuming that he's going to be back or at least willing to bet that he lands back in Minnesota as a free agent. And then if he doesn't, you're not really sacrificing anything at that price. I think there's a good chance he goes back there. This is the team that developed him. He didn't necessarily have a ton of draft capital. I I think it's, I think it's pretty likely that he just stays in Minnesota. For some reason, he doesn't stay in Minnesota. I think he can get a starting tight end job somewhere and that he flashed enough. He's a pretty athletic guy. He's a good blocker. Mm -hmm. So I, he's someone that I just like in a nutshell to begin with, but I also think it's pretty likely. We just see this so many times that like, what's the most likely destination for these guys? It's where they've been before. So that's why with him, I'm like, Hey, if I, if I had to bet on which team he goes to, he's staying in Minnesota. I don't know. Like Irv Smith hasn't done anything except for being young. That's why <laughs> I just like, I just can't get quite get on board with a guy. Like, I don't think he's ever had 400 receiving yards. Like this is, mm-hmm. This is a complimentary tight end who's really, really young. Good for him. Tyler Conklin just did it. So that's that's why I think those types of stacks are fun. I think Everett's another one I've probably drafted too much. I just still believe in Russ and him in Seattle. And Everett had some really high target games last year. He's very athletic. So that's another one. So often my sneaky stacks will just be those later round tight ends and correlating. Well, so Conklin, Everett, and um, Tunyon are all facing free agency. So it sounds like, too, that you might find value in targeting guys who are free agents because at least players that we can pretty well count on landing somewhere. And then we have, you know, some kind of decent idea of the probability of them going to their optimal spot. I, I absolutely agree that that is a potential value area in these early drafts because it's going to scare people off, especially those who are not maxing out their entries. Yeah. I think like another name I put for like guys that are going in the fifth round that I think should be fourth round picks, Mike Williams. I have a ton of Mike Williams. Mike Williams is most likely going to stay with the chargers and be with a really, really good quarterback and a fast paced pass heavy offense where he was just the wide receiver 13 per game. He was just like a borderline wide receiver one. We just saw it in his first year in a new role change. The A dot went way down. The target share went way up. This looks pretty sustainable. And in his first year in a totally new system and a totally new role, he smashed and he had a ton of spike weeks and he finished with like 1100 something receiving yards, a lot of receptions, nine touchdowns. It was just the counting stats were pretty mind boggling. He finally broke the 20% target share and Mike Williams should not be going in the fifth round because I think it's most likely chargers are like, Hey, stay here. And then I think he pretty much immediately becomes a fourth round pick once that happens. So that's another one where I'm like free agent, but I really don't see him going anywhere. The chargers can afford him. Herbert does not want to have to throw to 30 year old Keenan Allen and Josh Palmer as his only receivers. They, they still don't even have a tight end. So I think it's pretty much locked in Mike Williams staying on the chargers, grab him in the fifth and just enjoy that, that nice discount because of the the uncertainty with him. He's one that I've had to talk myself into a little bit because I started the off season thinking, well, it, he's probably going somewhere else. They could have extended him by now if they wanted to keep him around, but 
Then I realized how much cap space they have left uh, that, you know, if we're just like, even if I have absolutely no info anywhere, it's more likely that he signs with the chargers than, you know, any other individual team around the league. So that alone makes it a decent bet. And even though he's going, you know, somewhat early round five versus the entire field of players, that's like high wide receiver three range. So it's not that big Mm -hmm. a risk to take a shot on him. So he's somebody I was not in so much on early that I talked myself into later, trying to make sure that I get some before he does sign somewhere. And especially if it's back with the chargers um, Mm -hmm. because of the upside there, that kind of just a a quick point on quarterback stacking. Cause we talked about Joe Burrow being at five, Justin Herbert's a QB three. Is he somebody that you're avoiding for Chargers stacks or, you know, that you're getting minimal shares of? So this one really sucks. I'm a Charger fan. I don't have a lot of Herbert. So I've gotten some Herbert when I go Allen round three or Eckler in the first. I've got some Herbert. If it seems like I'm going to be able to get him with Mike Williams, then sometimes I'll go Herbert in the fourth, Williams in the fifth. But overall, it's another one where Justin Herbert just doesn't quite rush enough. I just really have such a hard time pulling the trigger on the super early quarterbacks. I've never been a big Mahomes drafter for the most part. I understand Josh Allen. I think he's the only quarterback right now that can give you that potential massive edge over the field where he's got both the rushing and the passing. But for me, like I'd just rather take Lamar or Kyler. These guys are competent enough passers. They're going to run so much more than Herbert. And it's just really difficult to... I just feel like I can basically replicate that production later on. Mm-hmm. But there's guys in that range. Like if I'm grabbing Darren Waller in the early fourth, I think he could have a season where it's just really hard to replicate that tight end production. He had a 25% target share again last year. If he's healthy this year, he could really separate himself from the field. Herbert, even though he was the QB two per game last year, it's not like he was really separating himself that much from the field. He was still a decent ways away from the QB one, Josh Allen. I wish Justin Herbert were going a little bit later. I have gotten a a couple of shares to stack him with teammates, but uh, the one thing that I'm kind of clinging to, I guess a little bit, I wouldn't say clinging because I haven't been drafting him very much, but he hasn't had that monster touchdown uh, rate yet. He's been sub 6% both years so far. So he, you know, if he hits 7% and obviously that's not a number to bet on, but Mm -hmm. when I get my, you know, share here, share there to stack with a Charger teammate, I can say, yeah, if, if Herbert hits that 7%, touchdown rate season he could be that QB1 and have the monster season but it's going to take something like that for him to pay off from there I agree Kyler Murray especially when you can get DeAndre Hopkins in round three is a much more attractive mm-hmm. stack uh, I think that Lamar has climbed up some I, st- I think he's still attractive but you can also get Marquise Brown later with him and you don't feel like you have to stack with Lamar Jackson because the rushing is so much of the value with him so yeah it, it hurts because I liked Lamar. I liked Justin Herbert more than most people as a prospect for fantasy coming into the league. So I want to stick with him, but he's going a little bit early to be a focal point uh, right now. Yeah. I think with me, like my, my quarterback rankings, just if I wasn't looking at ADP, I'd have Allen one, I'd have Lamar two. Lamar. We just saw in 2019, he had what? 28 fantasy points a game. He broke everything. And dare I say it, his situation's better now. He had the 9% touchdown rate. He had the, like 35 or 36 touchdowns that year with not a lot of receivers. Hollywood's broken out. Bateman 
probably a future stud. Andrews really took off this past year. Lamar's still going to run a ton. I don't think you're ever going to have like a mid-20s Lamar Jackson season where he's not running a ton. So you're still going to get the rushing equity. And he just has this really strong pass catching group. And I still think there's question marks. We don't really know just how good Dobbins or Gus Edwards is going to be next year. I think, I think it's going to be a run game upgrade from the past from yet from last year, but how much, I don't know, probably some, but I still think that the, the 2019 upside case with Lamar, it's there, if not better in 2022. And that's why I don't quite understand. Yes. He's trying to get pushed up. He's going early fifth, but I mean, why, why isn't he going ahead of Mahomes? That's something that I just don't understand. Yeah. So I I think there's things like that where to me, I just go, Mahomes can't get, he's not going to get 28 fantasy points a game. He's going to need like a 12% touchdown rate to make that happen. Lamar, he can be the QB one with a six, 7% touchdown rate. I think that not enough people for some reason are recognizing that, that this, this is the guy that has more upside and that you just have to side with the rushing QBs in fantasy football. Sorry. That that's just how the the scoring system is. Yeah. Especially the guy who's shown us he can go over a thousand yards. It helps him too, that as you said earlier, you get into that round four range and the picks look ugly. So if you're like, do I need to take a David Montgomery here? No, you don't. You can take Mm -hmm. Lamar Jackson and then you can wait until later. And Miles Sanders is going to be on the board ridiculously late. Clyde Edwards, Elair is going to be around for you. Damian Harris will be around. So no, you don't have to take the running back. You don't want in round four. You can take the running back who plays quarterback as well. We haven't really talked about the rookies. It is scouting combine week. Have you found value in the rookies in early best ball drafting? Obviously the incoming rookies is what we're talking about. So I don't do a ton of rookie research super early on. Most of my rookie research is more in March, but I ended up doing something kind of interesting. I did some research in a podcast that I, I dropped a couple of weeks ago, all about how I draft a lot of rookies, even if I don't know anything about them. And I just kind of went through historical data and it turns out basically year after year after year, regardless of the rookie class, there's always some studs that emerge at running back and receiver. And if we look at early ADPs, there's just no rookies going super early. But I mean, we think about last year, remember Jalen Waddle, Jamar Chase, those guys finished really, really high up. Amon Ross St. Brown did really, really well. If we look at running back like Najee Harris, Ash Harris did really, really well. Khalil Herbert had a point where he was giving you pretty nice spike weeks. There's just always guys like that. They just somehow emerge year after year. And the the ADPs just weren't reflecting that. Basically, mm-hmm. like one thing that I noticed was pretty much every single season, there's going to be a rookie that's at least like the wide receiver 30 per game or better at receiver. Yet there's no rookie receivers getting drafted in the top 30. So already, like, I know, maybe I don't know who it is, but I know someone out there is going to end up greatly exceeding their ADP and that the rookies are just good bets to do that. Same with running back. There's pretty much always someone that's like top 15 per game at running back among the rookies. Brees Hall is the earliest rookie running back taken, and he goes, what, late 20s? He's like a early RB3 type right now. And I mean, he's probably got the best chance at it. So, I mean, there's also Kenneth Walker, Spiller, there's Kyron Williams. I don't know. There's just a lot of guys out there where 
I just know historically year after year, one, two, three of these guys is going to catapult and greatly exceed ADP. And that it's harder to find that archetype outside of the rookie. And it's because at this stage, we don't know where they're going to land. We don't know that much about them outside of college. And that I like leaning into that uncertainty. And it was kind of a fun podcast because I was like, hey, I'm not even going to tell you about these rookies. Mm-hmm. All I'm going to tell you is where they go in drafts. Mm-hmm. And historically, how many guys are finishing way ahead of that year after year based on points per game. And I think I, the cutoff I did was like 10 games. You had to play at least 10 games to qualify. So these are guys that are actually... It's not like they played one game as a rookie and crushed. These are real contributors for a season. And it was really interesting to me to do that and go, okay, I always knew like you're supposed to take rookies early, but now I've confirmed it in kind of an interesting way that, hey, we don't even have to know who it is. I'm just going to take the guys that are projected to get drafted early and just cross my fingers that I get it right. And that if I have two to four rookies running back receiver on each team, that I'm probably going to have a lot of teams that get the a decently optimal combo and now I've got some guys that I took in round seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve that are actually playing like a round three, round four type pick. And rookies are one of the only archetypes that can exceed ADP that drastically. Yeah, we just talked about free agents. I think it's key to play on hesitation by drafters because we know we see it every year. Rookies will jump multiple rounds in ADP after the draft happens just because we know Uh, where these guys land at that point. And obviously the risk is guessing wrong now, but I think this is where portfolio building matters more to me than spreading my individual player exposure is. I don't know who the key rookies are going to be. I don't know where these guys are going to land, but I can tell guys that are probably going to be toward the top of the candidates to do so. So if I'm drafting, you know, 40 something teams here, or especially if it's beyond that and I'm maxing out, I definitely get plenty of shares of them. And even if, you know, I'm only drafting 10, 15 entries to this tournament, take a couple of rookies on that roster where you're taking nine receivers or five or six running backs, you know, stick two receivers at the bottom in case one of them breaks out and get different receivers between your drafts so that you can, you know, have a better chance of getting the right one. Now I do think that there are a few particular guys that stand out as values that I'm going to be Uh taking more often. I know sky Moore has been one that has, has been a player that I've gravitated to as a guy that stays on the board until the very end of the draft. I was looking at market shares and that's what really drew me to him because he's near the top of the board in all those categories, receiving yardage and touchdowns among his team. Then he had the big combine, so I'm hoping that he won't climb up mm-hmm. ADP too much. But are there any other specific players that you found in your, you found yourself drafting a little bit more than other incoming rookies? Yeah, so one guy that I found out I took a, a lot of was Drake London. He it looks like, from what I've read, he's probably going to go in the first half of the first round. That's very, very good historically for how his usage will be in year one. And uh, like Traylon Burks goes in the 60s. Garrett Wilson goes around pick 80 and Drake London's probably going to get drafted before both of those. And he goes at like pick 90 or 92. So right there, I was like, Oh wow, that's, I mean, it doesn't even matter what I think of Drake London. Right. I just know that receivers that have the potential for top 10 draft capital in the first round, they have no business going in the nineties. The same with like Chris Olave. I'm like, Oh, this guy's probably going to go in the first round and he's available after pick a hundred. It doesn't even matter what I think of this guy. I should just have some exposure. Another one was Jahan Dotson. No, almost nothing about him, but I know that he's going to go either late first round or early to mid second round. 
yet I'm getting him in like the, the 160s. So he was someone that I ended up having a lot of because I was like, oh, I'll just I'll take this guy. Sure. I, I know pretty much nothing about him. I can glance at his college stats. Looks productive. But I just know that he's going to get the opportunities. He's going to see the field. We just saw it last year. I mean, sure, Kadarius Tony got injured and stuff, but we saw the potential where the guy had a horrendous prospect profile. <laughs> and I took a lot of him in best ball drafts because I was like, hey, first round picks are going to see the field and they're going to get opportunities. And sure enough, even after having like the worst opening stretch to a career you could possibly have where he, he had like negative receiving yards through two or three weeks <laughs> and the team apparently hated him and he hated the team, what happens? He still ended up flashing before he gets injured. And he had a couple of huge games. That's just what these first round rookies do. They're going to get the opportunity. And even if they don't have the great prospect profile, at least for year one, the team's probably going to try and justify why they spent the early pick on them. So I'll basically just target whoever the cheapest guy in it within a round is. So it's not like I'm avoiding Traylon Burks, but if I can get London or Olave, who are probably going to go around where he goes, if not even before him in the draft, three, four, five rounds later, then I'll do that. And that's going to be the guy that I have the the extra exposure to. Yeah, that, that's been me too, Drake London in particular, especially once you see Daniel Jeremiah had him in the top 10. Mel Kuyper Jr., I think, had him as the first wide receiver off the board. So that's where I, it, it pays to look at that stuff as well because I, I noticed that imbalance between Drake London and Traylon Burks. And nothing against Burks. Maybe he is the highest scoring rookie wide receiver, but if he's 1280p spots at the position ahead of Drake London, that's just – not as good a bet as Drake London, I don't think. Now, the big board we mentioned is closed. Superflex big board just opened. It's a brand new thing. So I get, I got to be honest, Josh. I saw it come out yesterday, and I was like, well, wait a second. I'm not sure I'm ready to jump into this because I don't have my ranking set for 22, 2022 yet. So I'm not sure how I value all these guys. But there might be more opportunity for this than there are for all those one-quarterback tournaments because the drafting community – overall isn't as comfy with this doesn't know what it's doing as much with this so how are you approaching the Superflex big board now that it's available for us so this is going to be kind of a big reveal so i was gonna i'm gonna make a, a twitter thread it'll be free if you're if you're on twitter and you're on my profile you'll see it later this afternoon about some research i did last night so i was pretty cocky i was pretty excited yesterday the big board Superflex opens and i'm like holy shit I'm making teams where I've got Jonathan Taylor and Devontae Adams on the same team. This is amazing. I was high-fiving myself. I was getting ridiculous position player value. I had Eckler pick 19. I screenshotted it. I gloated about it on Twitter. I was like, this is just the greatest thing ever. These idiots letting me do that. Coded up some research. I have switched to team early quarterback. <laughs> Spoiler alert. So, I'll go really in-depth on, on that Twitter thread since I think it takes more than a, a couple-minute discussion to go through mm -hmm. the research I did and how I came to it. But basically, what I realized is that if we look during the season, what's the scarcest resource? It's quarterback. There's only one quarterback that can ever score usable fantasy points for a team in a game. You can even have like – you could have three, four receivers that are relevant in a game. You can have sometimes two running backs that are relevant. You'll never have more than one quarterback. And here's, here's something that got me that I didn't fully appreciate until I crunched the numbers. Think about all the bye weeks during the season. You are now shrinking the quarterback pool, which was already small to begin with. So 
if you can have two quarterbacks and 12 teams with two quarterbacks starting the, the quarterback replacement level that you want to shoot for during these bye weeks it's only a few fantasy points. It's some random like joker off the street. Like it could be like a Brandon Allen week where he fills in and gives you six fantasy points. And that compared to a lot of your opponents, if you have multiple good quarterback weeks, it's actually this pretty ridiculous edge. Underdogs also have PPR. So quarterbacks score the same amount of points as every other format, but every other player scores a lot less. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of mind blowing because I was so cocky. I was like, oh, Austin Eckler pick 19, you fools screenshot. Like there it is. Do some research late at night and go, Oh, you know what? <laughs> it looks like I'm a round one quarterback drafter most of the time. So I'll reveal the full numbers later today, but that was just like this, this come to Jesus moment where I was so certain that I, I cracked the code And I don't think that I was doing bad drafts. I think I was able to make up for it. I was taking four or five quarterbacks in the middle of the draft and just going bam, bam, bam. Quarterbacks have now risen in ADP. So like you can't really get cousins at pick 70 anymore, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. There were things I was doing yesterday that you can't do anymore that made this strategy a little more viable. But as ADPs adjust and after doing the research, you really want some early quarterbacks. So I Mm -hmm. thought that was just this crazy moment where, I love when I do research and my gut feels wrong since it's just a funny moment. You go, wow, especially I guess a pretty public Twitter presence with a, a decent amount of followers. Like there's thousands of people out there that are going to see that I have just completely pivoted on this one within a 24 hour period. And there, there's always going to be some people who are like, ah, aren't you the guy yesterday calling me an idiot for drafting my two early quarterbacks? But it's much better to be like, this is what I'm doing. And then the next day be like, ah, found out what I was doing is wrong. This is what I'm doing now. Then to be like, nope, that's how we're going. I'm not going to look to see if it's right. And then you get to the end of the season and realize that you screwed it up. So I, I can appreciate being able to do that. Yeah. I'm looking at my notes. Let me count. So I, so I, I did some calculations. I had JT when all of a sudden done, he was the most valuable pick for this type of format last year. If you just look at how they scored, then I have 10 straight quarterbacks as the next most valuable picks. So it's JT, 10 straight quarterbacks, and then there's some more running backs and very few receivers. Mm-hmm. I don't have a receiver. Oh, here was one of the best parts, actually. Cooper Cup, I didn't even have him in this format as a top 25 player. Maybe I need to go back to the drawing board and I have I had some issues with my research, but Cooper Cup wasn't showing up very high. And it's because there's a wrinkle. You only need to start two receivers now. Mm-hmm. And that actually changes the calculus completely. The replacement level for receiver changes and that suddenly like it's just when it goes from three receivers to two receivers, things change a lot because essentially the super flex replaced an actual receiver spot. There's still a normal flex spot. So it's only two running back two receiver. So all of a sudden with my, as I change the calculus, there's a few running backs, but it's pretty much just quarterbacks are dominating when you are probably going to have two quarterbacks each week, two running backs, two receivers, and then one flex. And it just changed everything about receiver. You don't need to take as many receivers. You don't need to take them as early. So it was very cool to figure that out and realize that in a half PPR super flex best ball, the receivers lose this crazy amount of value with the new roster positions. That was one other nugget I learned as I was like, probably shouldn't draft a ton of receivers to begin with, and especially not early that's just such a replaceable position when you only need two of them to hit in a given week. 
Right. So I look forward to the rest of that thread. I look forward to jumping into some of these super flex drafts, especially because I want to see if underdog drafters remain as wide receiver thirsty as they tend to be. I'm, I'm ready to play the format now that I've sat back and thought about it a little mm-hmm. bit. I'm looking forward to this, uh, this different avenue to head down. He's the director of analytics for Roto Underworld, player profiler, their entire network of sites. Josh, tell people where to find you besides in a draft room and what else we should look for from you besides this upcoming thread. So you can find me on Twitter at JLarkyTweets. Uh, I'm in the underdog draft rooms all day, every day while I'm working. My username is FunGuyHateStats. So you can find me there. And I'll just have... Uh, some podcast stuff coming out at some point on the Roto Underworld Podcast Network, things like that. Got some more research coming out for the site. You'll see that soon. So basically, if you're plugged into me on Twitter, I post enough that any kind of big research or big ideas I have, I'll either post it on Twitter or have a link on Twitter that takes you to it, to the podcast or whatever. So that's probably just the best place to generally keep up. The last thing I'll do, I'll plug my coding course. Mm-hmm. I teach R coding for analytics. So if you want to learn how to code and learn analytical skills using football data. I have a course for that. There's a link on my Twitter. So I think that that's just a good way. If you're like, I want to do an analytics career or I want to take my fantasy football analysis to another level or just learn coding in general, that's always a good way to do it. And to to be able to keep me employed and in the industry at the same time. Nice. (laughs) And it's that our coding site, right? Yeah. That our coding site.com. All right. Well, thanks very much for coming on here and sharing all the knowledge that you did. And I agree. If you follow Josh on Twitter, you're not going to lose track of what he's doing because there are lots of posts to keep him in your timeline on there. That's how I, you know, came upon you as the first guest in this series of best ball stuff. Cool. Thank you. I appreciate it. Always good talking about best ball with other people that are equally as passionate and that have also put in the reps just makes for really good conversation. And yeah, let's just, just keep it going. Absolutely. I agree. That's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. We are busy behind the scenes at DraftSharks.com, though, with big updates for 2022. We are currently loading our initial projections and updating the draft war room. You will be able to sync with even more drafting sites this season, including Underdog, which we talked about today. You'll now be able to sync your DraftSharks war room via the mobile app as well. It means we'll automatically remove players from your board as they're selected in your draft real time. If you're already drafting for 2022, become a DS insider to take full advantage of that stuff. For my guest, Josh Larkey, and the entire Draft Sharks crew, I'm Matt Schaaf saying thanks so much for swimming with us.